You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. And we started off this evening with Delaware men's basketball. Yesterday, the Blue Hens, an 80-65 loss against Navy. It snapped a three-game winning streak for Delaware. Ethiel Horton, another 20-point performance. He had 22 off 9 of 17 shooting. Eric Carter also in double figures with 18. But down the stretch, the midshipman able to draw away with some timely shooting from Cam Davis and some physical play down low with a couple of their guys, including uh, Chris Kiernan and Danny Ojeli, who had their way with Matt Ferretto and Jacob Cushing through much of the evening yesterday. Jake, any thoughts on Delaware basketball and the first loss in, in about two and a half weeks for the team? This is... Well, the first thing I thought of right when you said that was 3 Pete, and that is CAA Rookie of the Year 3 Pete, because I was looking at some of the names. Uh, UNCW has a good rookie. And I wish I remembered his name, but I didn't. But because they played uh, top 25 uh, North Carolina a few nights ago, so I looked at the stat sheet. They have a nice rookie. But Ithiel Horton, 20 points, and he's made his name. He's made his starting spot, which is why it's even more interesting than when Ryan Allen gets back. But based on this game, I actually sat down next to Eric Carter at the library after I was studying. Uh, I sent a message in the group chat like Eric Carter sitting next to me. And what I actually <laughs> heard from him talking to his friends is that they were just so nonchalant going into it. They didn't have enough fire under them against a competitive Navy team. That was almost as if they didn't care. And halfway through the second, when it kind of got out of hand, they were like, oh, wait, we're behind. We got to pick it up. And by then it was too late. Yeah, there's an interesting quote from Ithiel Horton last night that I'm going to pull up here. He said, quote, we need to stay humble. We were on a winning streak and thought we would roll over them. But they came in here and whipped us. And that's that's exactly the sentiment that it seems like Eric Carter shared, too in that they started to feel themselves a little bit over that three-game winning streak. But you got to keep in mind, some of these teams they've been playing haven't been the same level that Delaware has. And this Navy team, despite being 2-5, and five, has dominated the all-time series against the Blue Hens. They defeated Delaware 80-76 to in 2017. The margin in the all-time series is upwards of 10 games in Navy's favor. And they came out in the first half, and they dominated the glass, which a lot of the times is effort-based more so than it is skill. I mean, you know, size factors into it, but you, you can you can put a lot of effort into getting boards and get them. You have 18 offensive rebounds to Navy in the first half, and then by the time we get into the second half, they go on a couple of runs, but they're unable to make enough stands defensively to allow their offense to stay in the game. That's what we saw against Louisiana Tech. I mean, Louisiana Tech was one of the best offensive teams in the nation at the point that they played Delaware. And Delaware out-rebounded them. They've never been out-rebounded on the offensive end this season until they played Delaware. And it wasn't because Eric Carter and Colin Goss were just dominating the boards. It was because of the effort. It was because Matt Verretto coming in from the wing, Kevin Anderson coming in from the top of the key, uh, boxing a man out and getting the rebounds. I don't think this is going to be the same Delaware team that we're going to see come CAA play because I think once we hit CAA play and they're quite possibly could still be at the top of the division in the CAA in non-conference standing, there'll be enough of a fire right then and there. Yeah. Then Ryan Allen comes back, hopefully, at the same time. Uh, worst case scenario, we get a... Well, worst case scenario, if he doesn't come back. But moderate worst case scenario, we wait a few weeks, and then he comes. That's a, that's an added fire. And this is a team that probably won't lack energy from no point forward. Right. If there is a swoon at this point in the season, you wouldn't want to see it. But this is the time that it would happen. You've been through a month of play. It's still non-conference action, so it kind of feels stale. You got a lot going on school-wise too. The, you know, last night was a little reminder. Yeah. Hey, hey, these guys are students too, right? They, you know, believe it or not, they do homework and they go to class and they have projects, and most of them are pretty smart guys. Um, so, you know, if if it is going to be a little bit of a lull here, they got a game this weekend on Sunday. They got two more in non-conference play before CAA play begins. This would be the time to do it. And like you said, when you get to that game against Hofstra on the road, if you need a wake-up call, that's the perfect time to have one. It'll be the first CAA game, and it's a, a good Hofstra team that comes at you with Justin Wright Foreman, probably the best returning scorer in this league yep. from a season ago. Uh, other things that that stand out to you from this game, I mean, I, I agree with you. With your thoughts off the top with Horton, you know, he's top leading scorer among rookies heading into yesterday, and imagine he still is after scoring twenty two last night. He was very consistent. Uh, Kevin Anderson got three fouls at the end of the first half, which I think hurt them on the glass a little bit. He's been second on the team in rebounding so far as a point guard, which is pretty impressive. But he also facilitation wise with the offense, I think they got a little stagnant without him. Uh, but, you know, that's just him being in foul trouble early. 
Um, what do you think, Matt Verretto? Matt Verretto to me last night. That's my other takeaway. You know, after Horton, after Anderson, was Verretto quiet night for the first time in a little while, and they missed him. He had eight boards. It was a good uh, team outing for Matt Verretto. But like we talked about last show, we have that kind of vertical stretch with Eric Carter, Kevin Anderson, Ithiel Horton. We need that horizontal stretch. We need your Darian Bryant, your Matt Verretto's. And for good reason, this was a good time to have an off week because it's a Navy team. It's not CAA play. We can get back in the right direction. But Matt Verretto is the one person that's going to need to stretch the floor. Yeah, That's why this was so kind of interesting because Eric Carter broke 600 career rebounds. He scored 18 points down low. Teams are doubling him on the second or third possession because they know they do the homework on Eric Carter. Matt Verretto should be doing more. He should be getting more possessions. should be getting wide open looks. should be getting uh, catch and shoots. So I'm not too uh, concerned about him yet. But should the game plan continue where teams are doubling Eric Carter on the second possession, Kevin Anderson gets bottled up, and this keeps continuing with Matt Ferretto, we'll start to see some more rotation with everybody else. Yeah, I wouldn't be down on his game offensively yesterday. Just didn't seem to get a lot of touches, and the offense wasn't really in their flow, especially in the first half. Where I have a little concern moving forward, and I think this is matchup dependent, but where I have some concern is defensively. Um, you know, If he's not making four or five three-pointers and forcing other teams to go a little bit smaller and chase them out to the three-point line, some bigger physical power forwards can take advantage of him down low. And that's a a matchup that Navy went to repeatedly, especially early in the game with Chris Kiernan and Danny O'Jelly. Those guys started slow shooting once they heated up a little bit in the second half. It helped Navy pull away in part. Uh, And I think if you're Veretto, if you're Delaware – that's the way you want to play. You want to play that four-out style. You want to space everything out for Eric Carter and then for your drivers like Horton and Anderson and have Veretto take some three-point opportunities. And when he gets open looks, he's going to knock them down. But if he's not getting those shots, then you get into a thing where like, okay, do we have to pull Veretto out? Because defensively, their bigger guys are going to take advantage of him. He's a weird big man. He has the height six seven, and the size to play a center role but the footwork, the speed, the aggressiveness to play a wing. And there's no... Well, I wouldn't say he has the speed. That's what partially hurts him is that he can't run with the shorter guys on the perimeter. He has, he has to play the three sta- or the four. Standard wing speed. Because he's, he's slow. I mean, in the open court, he's slow. Yeah. He can't... Ha- he like that. That's a knock on him that I sent you a text during the one game. Like he, It's not for lack of effort. The dude is hustling all the time, yeah. but he's just a slow guy. If like, you put a standard stand wing on corner. him, he'll be fine. But like you said, if they go slow, if they bring a stretch two into that 3-4 position, it's going to be run the floor every day. I think they need to find his happy medium. I don't, I'm not saying try him at center. I think there's more than enough capability there. Yeah, But maybe put a different combo out there. Maybe go like really big. And they've at times it. we've seen him with Jacob Cushing in similar lineups where you wouldn't necessarily consider one the three or one the four. They're they're kind of the same. Uh, we saw that for a couple of minutes yesterday. Wasn't all that different, but maybe that's something that you think about a little more often too. Yeah, it's just finding the right pieces to work. And this and, is the time to do yeah, it. Yeah, test it. You're playing a three and a two and five at the time. Navy team. Okay, test it out. This Sunday they match up against St. Francis. Uh, again, non-conference action. They'll have two more after that at Stony Brook and then back at the Bob Carpenter Center against Delaware State. What should they be focusing on in the matchup this weekend against St. Francis? Giving Eric Carter a break. They're not going to be able to, but they should be able to win basketball games without Eric Carter dropping double-doubles. It's not a rare occurrence for Eric Carter to drop double-doubles, and he's probably going to. He has Double-digit scoring in all 10 games so far. No reason to believe he doesn't make it 11. But they need to kind of shy away from it. And this is the time to test it. Maybe not do that high pick-and-roll from Eric Carter every other play on the offensive end where Kevin Anderson ditches it and they just run a two-man. Move the ball around. Get other looks. Try to get some high-low game with a four. Maybe Matt Verretto plays a high-low game with somebody. But let's try and shy away from Eric Carter because once CAA play comes... If it's not UNCW who's throwing Kaycock on him and that's just going to be a battle of the Titans, people are just going to double him. And you're not right. going to win CAA games with double teams nonstop on Eric Carter. Right, unless these other guys are, are taking advantage, which is, which is going to be a constant theme throughout this season. But there's a long way to go, right, until you get that point. Maybe it's an opportunity to start getting some of these guys off the floor because you look back to the Columbia game, 
all four starters played 39 or more minutes. It was double overtime. Ithiel Horton played all 50 minutes. Carter played 40-plus. Even last night, everybody's 35-plus minutes, and, and it's been that way for the last couple of games, especially when it's close. It seems like Inglesby has been very unwilling in the last 10 or so minutes of games to really take anybody out of the lineup, and you'd like to see over these next three, I think, some of the starters get a little bit more time on the bench before CAA play. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Now we're going to turn our attention to the NBA, where I've tasked both of us with coming up with our top three teams in each of the conferences, the Western and the Eastern Conference. Right now, when you look at the standings out West, everything is extremely tight. There's really only one of the 15 teams that at this point in the season you could really eliminate and that's the Houston or excuse me the uh, Phoenix Suns who are 4 and 20 they're 13 games out of first place everybody else is separated by only 6 and a half games in the east a little bit more separation but still some parity between the first 5 or 6 seeds or so so i imagine our list will be a little bit different but Jake I'll go to you first and let's start out west with the team that you've placed third among western conference teams this was hard solely because how am I rating LeBron James? That's it. That was the only deciding factor on where I put the Lakers, but I decided third. So I put the Lakers at third, sitting at 15-9, and nine, and basically my only reasoning behind it is they can't get worse. LeBron's not going to let them get worse. They're young players. They have to find their footing. Nah, put it how you want it. Lakers, LeBron, third. Their winning percentage since the beginning of November would put them right at about the first or second spot in the conference. They've been very good over the last month or so, and you just look at pure wins and losses. And LeBron James, if you look at his numbers, he's right in the neighborhood of 27 points per game, seven rebounds a game, and seven assists per game, which is exactly in line with what he's done across his career, and he's never once missed the playoffs. Um, and, And you look back over the last eight seasons, his teams, albeit in the Eastern Conference, but his teams have have always made it to the NBA Finals. Yeah, and I think a good name to put out there is Tyson Chandler. Not going to put it all on him, but this was a team that couldn't guard anybody. They were third to last in defensive efficiency before getting Tyson Chandler. Now they have him seventh in the NBA in defensive efficiency. Good defensive guy, good veteran, leads to a good team. Is this a team that could make a midseason move with some of their young pieces and add another veteran presence as a second or third option to LeBron? I don't know if they're going to add a veteran presence, but they could trade for a young guy. Because, well, then why would you trade a young guy for a young guy? Nah, I don't think they're going to make any moves. If it's going to be, it's going to be straight signing. A free agent, a waiver, pick somebody up. uh, Because I think they're happy with how the team looks now. My number three team in the West is the Denver Nuggets. Right now, they lead the Western Conference with a record of 17-7. and And it's been a surprise team. It's one of those teams that beginning of the season would have been in the mix among the 7, 8, 9, 10 seeds in most people's projections. But I think they've taken a step forward. Nikola Jokic is in the midst of a great season right now by ESPN's real plus minus metric. He's third in the league, only behind Anthony Davis and James Harden. Will Barton has just, you know, has been in the lineup with injury, but Jamal Murray, Gary Harris, those guys a little hot and cold, but when they're on, they provide that scoring presence from the outside, especially Jamal Murray, who's probably even more streaky than Harris. But when he's on, it's a a nice two-man game between he and Jokic. Isaiah Thomas was supposed to be that sixth man off the bench for them. He's been injured. I think this is a team that could package one of their bench pieces and a first-round draft pick for like another fringe bench guy, a seventh or eighth option. To try to bolster this unit down the stretch because even though they're the number one team in the West right now, it's not a comfortable margin to fall to the ninth seed in the Western Conference. But I do think that the Nuggets have taken a step forward, especially on the offensive side of the ball behind Jokic. They have a trio of guards in Jamal Murray, Gary Harris, and Will Barton that are I don't I don't know if I want to call them like second tier superstars. But they are good players that just never get any attention. Yeah, they're like top 50 guys in the league. Yeah. They're somewhere between 30 and 50. Yeah. And they're also a great passing team. Paul Mm -hmm. Millsap, the, uh, I guess, ageless journeyman, the other journeyman besides Dwight Howard, who's moved so many times, is one of the best bigger men in the league. And people forget that. They all only remember him 
on the Hawks catching and throwing it out to Kyle Korver when he was there and when that team couldn't miss anything from 20 feet. Yeah. So they were just splashing out there. They're hard to guard. I think that's what I was trying to get at. Guards that can spread the floor, centers that can pass and shoot. No two-way teams didn't have an easy time guarding them. We're ranking the top three teams in each of the Eastern and the Western Conference. Jake, you had the Lakers at number three. Who do you have at number two? Uh, um, I, I'm going to put the Warriors at two. I want to put them in one, mm. but just for the last few games from what I saw, um, I'm going to put the Warriors at two. I think once Steph Curry plays a few full weeks of healthy basketball, changes my mind, Steph Curry's at one. Uh, Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors are at one. But right now, they're at two. They're Last sh- night, may I offer this to the, to the jury? 34 minutes, 42 points, 9 rebounds, 7 assists for Steph Curry. Yeah, it was a good game. I need more of that from him just to show he's healthy. Uh, two, three days from now, he might come down with injury. But as long as they're healthy, right now, they're at a 50% chance to win it all. With Steph Curry healthy, I wouldn't be surprised if that goes up to 55 60%. So I have to... I'll give my number two in a minute, but then who do you have at number one? Oklahoma like, City. So we compare these. Okay, what makes Oklahoma City the number one team over Golden State? What do you like about them? Paul George. His 47-point outing was vintage Indiana Pacers thing of beauty Paul George, where every time he touched the ball, the court froze. All five members on the defense stared at Paul George, keyed him in, and he still beat him. There was a drive where Russ drove in, fed it to Steven Adams, Stephen Adams, not even looking at the basket, a good Stephen Adams shot, swings it to Paul George, hits a three for the dagger to go up. That's Paul George. I think right now that team on all cylinders is better than Golden State. Once Steph Curry is healthy or shows me three or four stretches of healthy, changes everything. Golden State, number one, not even close. Yeah, for me, I have Oklahoma City at number two. And I have the Golden State Warriors at number one. I mean, we we sat here a couple weeks ago and made our list of the top 10 players in the league. And all three of us, you, me, and Nick DeLaglio, had Steph Curry and Kevin Durant in our top three. They had two of the top three players in the league. Maybe Draymond's taking a step back, but you still look at the top four guys on that roster. And they have four of the top 20, four of the top 25 guys in the NBA. Steph Curry has missed a few games. He's been back for about three games now. His numbers line up to be right in that MVP conversation with guys like Giannis, with guys like Kawhi, LeBron, his teammate Kevin Durant, who put himself in that conversation with a string of three 40-plus point games uh, while Curry was out right before Curry came back. So to me, they're still the undisputed best team in the league right now. They're fourth record-wise at 17-9. and nine. With Curry out, he missed 11 games. They went 5-6. and six. So that is the Steph Curry effect. This is a different team without him, but now that he's back, I mean— they're firmly the best team in the league. And even without him, I think I picked them to beat anybody in a seven-game series, but it does become a lot closer. Uh, but for me, number one team is the Warriors. And the Thunder should get a lot of credit for being where they are right now, the number two team in the league. Defensively, they're better than the Warriors have been so far this season. And they don't have Andre Robertson back yet from injury, who last year was probably their best defender out on the perimeter. Paul George is quality defender. Russell Westbrook's not bad. And then you got Steven Adams guarding the rim. So that, that's a complete team. They play both ways, but I still have to go with just the talent overall of the Warriors for the top spot. Uh, the one team that, that got a big omission who won the Western Conference last year was the Houston Rockets, and they've obviously started their season slow. They're 11-12 and 12 right now, which puts them third to last, only ahead of San Antonio and Phoenix. What would Houston have to do over the course of the next few weeks and months to put themselves back into that conversation as one of the top Western Conference contenders. Keep James Harden and Chris Paul on the court at the same time. The Rockets are 10-4 and four when Chris Paul and James Harden combine for 60 more minutes. Or 60 or more minutes. That's both of them playing 30-plus minutes a game. They're 10-4 and four this season. They're two of the best players in the league. James Harden's one of the, if not the most elite scorer from anywhere on the court. You need to just keep your guys healthy. If that means resting them for five or six minutes at the end of the game or give them a little break going into or halftime, stay, so sit be them it. out for a day. Yeah, yeah give them yeah. a rest day. Once you go on a little bit of a run, win six of your last seven, all right, give them a rest and then get them back out there. Keep your stars healthy. We see how it affects Golden State. We saw how it affected Oklahoma City with Russ out. We saw it affected them in the conference finals yeah. a season ago. They have with the Paul. Warriors on the ropes, and Chris Paul gets injured, and that's a completely different series for games six and seven. Healthy Rockets are dangerous Rockets, especially when the two healthy ones are James Harden and Chris Paul. 
Yeah, when I was putting this list, I considered them for my top three. I'd probably put them fourth or fifth right now just because of the talent level of those two guys, but they haven't done enough on the court uh, for me to put them above a team like Denver, who who leads the conference, a team like Oklahoma City, who's second in the conference record-wise. Another team to watch out for could be the Clippers, too. They they don't have a superstar, but they are off to a good start, 16-8, and eight, and they've been dominant in the Staples Center, 9-1. and one. They plan a pretty tough schedule to open the season, too. I almost wouldn't say they don't have a star. I mean, Tobias Harris is a star for purposes I mean, of the word. He's... Not necessarily. I mean, we just talked about Denver, and you said they you, they had Jamal Murray and Gary Harris Sub, on the sub-stars. subset. Tobias Harris is probably still a step below those guys. I would put him a step above. I think, but he's not even close to, to no. Stephen he's not Curry, a LeBron Kevin or a Durant. Durant. Those are the stars that we're talking about in the Western Conference. So then we'll 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 say the Jamal Murray's are sub sub stars, and we'll put I'll put uh, Tobias Harris above that. But the Clippers are very good at running the floor because of Tobias Harris. He's a good stretch defender, a good in transition defender, and they've beaten a lot of teams just because they can guard the run. You're listening to Blue End Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD. We're ranking the top three teams in both the West and the East. We'll take it to the Eastern Conference now. In lead, in the lead after defeating the Philadelphia 76ers last night are the Toronto Raptors, the best record in basketball. They're 21-5. and And then you run through the rest of the top eight seeds. It's Toronto, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Detroit, Indiana, Boston, Orlando, and Charlotte. Jake, your Western Conference teams were the Lakers, the Warriors, and the Thunder from 3-1. to one. Who do you have as the third best team in the East? Didn't we do third best team in the East already? We didn't talk about the East? Nope. Oh, interesting. Okay, so my third best team in the East is the Detroit Pistons. I really like wow. the, I really, really like the Detroit Pistons. And kind of because they really don't have a star either. Yes, Blake Griffin. Yes, Blake Griffin's a star. But he he's not really playing like one. He's playing this utility man inside-outside game. That's what... Blake Griffin did best, especially in college when he wasn't dunking on any living soul on the court. He was playing that inside-outside game. He was drawing defenders off him and giving him to the shooters. And if they can keep working with that, even if Reggie Jackson's not shooting as good as Reggie Jackson has been, they're still a really deadly team in the East. My third team right now is the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, the they're Right now they're second by record. They're 16-7. and seven. I like what they've been doing. They, they've they gotten more from the guys around Giannis. Obviously, Giannis has taken a step forward with his game. He has been talked about a lot as the MVP, despite really not having that shot. He's just been extremely efficient from inside the paint and, and from under the basket with, with dunking the ball. And, you know, he takes two steps, and he's from three-point line to the rim. But they're getting more from their other contributors. You look at a guy like Brooke Lopez, who's really stretching the floor for them. This season, his true shooting percentage, 62.4%. That's only about five or six steps behind Steph Curry's true shooting percentage, and he's dominated that category the last couple of years. His 15.8 net ratings, number two in the league. And as a team, they're shooting 36% from three. They, they st- could still stand to have another guy who stretches the floor, but Bledsoe's been good for them so far. Chris Middleton is looking like a second guy. He's in that Tobias Harris, Jamal Murray level he's in that category or he's getting there so so I like what the Bucks are doing it, technically I'm putting them down a spot when you look at what the standings are right now but I believe they're the third team in the east and coming into the season a lot of people would have seeded them fourth or fifth so I do right. think that's an improvement number two on the list for the number east. two I'll say I guess what I don't have first I don't have the Milwaukee Bucks in my top three uh, my number two is the Boston Celtics they're three and oh in the last three games Gordon Hayward dropped 30 points off the bench that's the only reason why they're here is because Gordon Hayward is finally getting back to that Utah Jazz Gordon Hayward. He's got a little while to go, especially because he's not even starting. He's coming off the bench for the Celtics. But once Gordon Hayward reaches his stride and thinks this is a really good first step, we saw how deadly the Celtics were last year without him. Plug Gordon Hayward into this lineup. That's when they start to get stretchy, streaky, tough to guard. On, and it's going to be an adjustment period. That's what the whole talk has been about in Boston. You've seen or read a lot of Kyrie Irving's comments about how things just haven't been meshing, and that's the new challenge for Brad Stevens, who in his career has long been the underdog as a coach. Even last year, because they lose Hayward, because they lose Kyrie Irving, 
not many people expected a whole lot out of the young guys like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, so he pulls that out of them a season ago. Now everybody expected them to be the best team in the East, or maybe the second best team in the East, because you take a team that won 50-plus games last year, made it to the Eastern Conference Finals, and adds two All-Stars back into the equation, and it was rough to start off. I kind of like Hayward coming off the bench right now. I think eventually, when we get to April, when we get to May, he's going to be back in the starting lineup as he works his way back. But I think some of their better lineups are with some of their ancillary players. Their five best players are Kyrie, Tatum, Hayward, Horford, and probably Jalen Brown, who started the year slow. But I think they're I'm a they're more they're a more well rounded team when you have Morris and Smart in the lineup instead of all of these guys who just w- want to score. I think they work better together. They have a little bit more grit and defensively, especially when you bring Smart into the equation. Then you throw in these guys like Baines, who who started the year Scary really Terry's hot. Scary Terry's still there. Terry Rozier off the bench. Like They have a lot of options. It's just a matter of figuring out what's going to be best for them. And when you have those those options, it's difficult. It's difficult to find who's going to be to do what, who's going to fill which role with this team, because they have a lot of guys who have well-rounded skill sets. Okay, you got to define those roles now. I think their biggest uh, asset is that Kyrie Irving is not asked to do it all. He wanted to be the guy. That's why he left Cleveland, went, quote-unquote, left Cleveland, and went to the Boston Celtics in that Isaiah Thomas deal, which, in hindsight, looks ridiculous for the Cleveland Cavaliers now, but we don't need to get into that. He's not the guy. Let me rephrase that. He's the guy, but he's not the only guy on the team because Jason Tatum, because Al Horford, because even Marcus Morris, Gordon Hayward can take some of that scoring burden off him. And I think if he were the guy you'd be and he didn't have anybody else around him, you'd be looking at a situation like you see in Phoenix. He'd be he'd be a little bit better version maybe of Devin Booker, who can score 25 points a night, but there's nothing else around him that team's four and 20 right now i don't know if a Kyrie, charlotte like a Kyrie team yeah exactly what, what Kemba. Kemba walker's doing right now a Kyrie team isn't like a lebron team where he's going to raise the play of everybody around him and they're automatically going to be a playoff team just because they have Kyrie. He he is still a guy who needs people around him in order for his team to excel and, and this is a, a pretty good situation for him especially what you would compare it to if he had stayed in cleveland and had lebron left the team like he did this offseason. At number three on my list, I had the Milwaukee Bucks. At number two, I have the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, they're 17-9. and nine. The Jimmy Butler trade ha- has been a good thing for this team. I think they're still working out exactly what his role is going to be, but he had his best game last night in a Sixers uniform, 36 points over 10 rebounds. It was first double-double for Philadelphia, and he's given them that closer. That's exactly what this team needed. They didn't have a guy who could score from all three levels, who could make his own shot at the end of games, They had a system which involves a lot of passing, a lot of ball movement. That's great for quarters one to three, but leads them to being turnover prone down the stretch. And we saw that a lot in the Boston series last year. Now they have a guy they can give the ball to and get out of the way. And he's he's been money. He's been very good in the clutch. There's a lot of stats out there. There's a great big number video by NBC Sports explaining that over the last two, two and a half seasons, Jimmy Butler's clutch numbers have been the best in the NBA, and you see it with the two big threes he hit uh, so far in a Sixers uniform. He's kind of picking his spots through the first three quarters. I do think Joel Embiid could probably use some rest at this point. He's averaging over 35 minutes a game. It seems like he's maybe wearing down a little bit. He's been kind of rough so far in the early part of this month, but he, at the beginning of the season at least, was on MVP-type pace, and I think Ben Simmons has kind of been a nice compliment to those two guys as well, and J.J. Redick is having a career year. In, in his year 14. So it's a well-rounded team. It's a team that definitely has a lot to improve on and could probably use another piece off the bench, but I like them as the second-best team in the East. The thing about Jimmy Butler and his clutchness is that he's like unexpected clutch because when you think clutch, you're always thinking of your LeBrons, your KDs, your Stephs, but him and Paul George have been two of the most clutch players in basketball, and it comes to the point that they are, can score from anywhere. Jimmy Butler's three-point percentage is almost 45% since arriving at the Philadelphia 76ers. Why? Because you're getting bodies on Embiid. You're getting bodies on JJ Ben Redick. Simmons, J.J. Redick. It's not like when he was in uh, with the um, Timberwolves where, sure, Derrick Rose needs a defensive player. Sure, Carl Anthony Towns, he's a defensive player. But Andrew Wiggins isn't making you quiver in your boots trying to guard him on the wing. Now that he has the ability to spread the floor and get 
different looks, you see what goes on with them. I had them at four. If I had to pick a fourth team, it would be the Philadelphia 76ers. So they're worse than Detroit. I just really like Detroit and how Blake Griffin is playing. I think it's more sustainable. Like you mentioned, Joel Embiid needs a rest, and once they start resting him, they're going to get worse in the regular season. But when they make it to playoffs, Joel Embiid will be healthy, and that's kind of all they are worried about. Uh, But I think I like Detroit more all around than I like the Sixers. Behind them, I put the Bucs at five. I don't don't really like the Bucs, frankly. But I think we both are agreeing on our number one seed, which is the next thing I was going to ask you. Toronto. Toronto, yeah. Um, you see it last night. Good fit. I mean, it, it's a Philadelphia team that was on a little bit of a roll, and, and Toronto beats them in the last five minutes, handedly beats them by over 10. Kawhi's been great. Ka- Kawhi has fit in there great. It it was a, a risk to make the move, giving away DeRon Rosen, who's been a big part of this team for a while, for Kawhi, who's on a one-year deal, and they still have to convince him that this should be the place he should spend the better part of his prime in. But for the time being... It's been a great fit, and they have been able to get him rest. They have all these other pieces who are role players. They're not household names. They don't have any other household names besides maybe Kyle Lowry, but everybody's doing their job, and the system has been great. Kawhi, last night, probably the best game of his season, over 40 points, uh, just just completely dominating. He's a two-way guy. He's probably the best rim or excuse me, perimeter defender who can also score 25 a night in the league. And then you add all these other pieces. I got some stats on Pascal Siakam, but I'll let you get in here on why the Raptors are your favorite team in the East. Kyle Lowry is averaging 10 assists per game. Mm -hmm. This was a guy that was tasked to get every shot that DeMar DeRozan didn't when they were on the team. Sure, Serge Ibaka can help. But this is a new Kyle Lowry. He was so sad that DeMar DeRozan was leaving. Did you... Totally unrelated topic, but really related. Did you see the interview yeah, with, with Kyle Richard Lowry? Nichols. I almost cried when they talked about how he was sitting on the side of the uh, his bath just in shock. Because he got the call like in the middle of Two the night in the morning. from DeMar DeRozan. And DeMar was like, I got traded. Yeah, and it was just and they were like, that point of what happens. And then there was that story that came out only weeks after the deal was made that said Masai Ujiri told DeMar DeRozan he wasn't going to be yep. traded. And then a couple of days later, he trades him for Kyle, or excuse me, for Kawhi Leonard. Yeah, the the whole and then and then the, the betrayed the thing with with Kyle Lowry. They asked Kyle Lowry, you know, what's your relationship with Masai Ujiri, and he said he's the GM. I'm a player. And then there, the yeah. uh, Rachel Nichols followed up saying like that leaves lots of interpretation. He's like, there's no no relationship beyond that. Yeah. So like some tough blood there, but on the floor, it's been a great fit fit for this Ten team. Assists per game. This was not a guy you think would lead the league in assists. You have Kawhi Leonard feasting off of it. Kawhi Leonard also has two assists, uh, two steals per game, which might not sound like a lot in the grand scheme of things, but two assists per game is a hefty number for a guy that's tasked to guard sometimes Kevin Durant, sometimes like an Eric Gordon-type player on the wing. Two assists is great. They're a good team, good all-around team. Push comes to serve. It's Kawhi Leonard against the world. I might take Kawhi Leonard. They also got Danny Green in that Kawhi Leonard trade. He leads the NBA in offensive rating. Uh, 119.9, so that's the his team's average score over a typically pace game with him on the floor. Pascal Siakam is 7th in that category. Siakam's 4th in the NBA in true shooting percentage, 68.8%. The guy ahead of him, Steph Curry, so that's the territory we're talking with Siakam, who's averaging just under 15 points a game and a little over 6 rebounds. Green shooting 43% from 3 Almost three-quarters of his looks have come from downtown. Everything works with this team. Jonas Valanciunas last night was making some really nice moves inside on Joel Embiid, who, again, didn't look like himself. But you add that element off the bench, if you need to play a little bit bigger and more physical against certain matchups, you can play him at center. If not, you you show Serge, you show Pascal Siakam down there, and then you have these guys on the wing, Lowry. Green, Leonard, off the bench, Fred Van Vliet has been a nice little piece for this team as the backup point guard over the last couple of years. It's a bench unit that last season was the best in the Eastern Conference and I think has gotten better. And then, you know, we talk about are things sustainable in Philadelphia, are things sustainable in Milwaukee over the course of the season with the high usage of guys like Joel Embiid and Giannis Antetokounmpo. Leonard right now is 15th in the NBA in usage. He's still at superstar level usage, 29%. But he's in the territory of D'Angelo Russell and Donovan Mitchell. Those guys are tied with him at 15th. 
So he's being used like you would a superstar, but I wouldn't say he's being overused. He's not being used as much as Embiid is or as much as Jokic is in Denver, some of these other guys that we've been talking about. So they're trying their best to keep him fresh. They they know the end goal. He's still working his way back from that injury that kept him out for most of last season. So far, so good in Toronto. And for real plus minus wins, which is the kind of basketball terminology for wins above replacement, which how many wins does this player account for? They have four players in the top 28 for wins above replacement. Leonard, Siakam, Green. Mm-hmm. Who's the fourth? Lowry. Lowry, yep. And Kyle Lowry leads the all the all of Toronto with almost five wins above replacement. They have players contributing on every aspect of it. They are they have four of the top thirty five players in real plus minus in general. Not many teams can say that. Your Warriors can say that. Uh, last year, when the Sixers went on that run at the end, when Robert Covington was definitely in that conversation with Sarge and them, you can say it for that team. But not many teams can say they have four players in real plus minus top thirty five. Real plus minus wins top twenty five. In the Eastern Conference, Jake's top three teams are Toronto, Boston, and Detroit. My teams are Toronto, Philadelphia, and Milwaukee. And out west, Jake has Oklahoma City, followed by Golden State and the Los Angeles Lakers. I have Golden State, Oklahoma City, and the Denver Nuggets. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Baseball is in full swing. Winter meetings next week. We already have some of the big dominoes falling. Most recently, Paul Goldschmidt, the first baseman for the Arizona Cardinals, dealt to the St. Louis first Arizona Diamondbacks, excuse me, dealt to the St. Louis Cardinals for a collection of prospects, including catcher Carson Kelly, right-handed pitcher Luke Weaver, infielder Andrew Young, and the Cardinals' 2019 competitive balance round B pick. Paul Goldschmidt has been an all-star in each of the past six seasons in Arizona a team that struggled last season and has already lost two of their cornerstone players and perhaps looking to deal a third in Zach Greinke. But Jake, your initial thoughts and reaction to the news that Paul Goldschmidt will now be a St. Louis Cardinal. What are you doing? You know the rules. You have a group of players who you can trade at whim. You then have your group of players who you need to be very impressed to make a trade. Then you have your group of players that you need to be sold the entire farm league to make a trade. And then you have your untouchables, your base, your cornerstone. Arizona, you had one player, and that was Paul Goldschmidt. He was your only cornerstone, your only base. And you gave him away for effectively a half-eaten bag of chips. You got nothing of value from the St. Louis Cardinals. I would not be surprised if any of those players you were given were off your roster come the beginning of the next season. Paul Goldsmith, four-time Silver Slugger, three-time Gold Glove Award winner. You don't trade that away for anything. I don't like the trade. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Here's the counter. And and I'm a big Paul Goldschmidt fan. I wrote a bunch of stats yeah, down earlier today about how much Paul Goldschmidt's going to help the St. Louis Cardinals, and I love it for the Cardinals. But here's why you trade Paul Goldschmidt if you're Arizona. He's a free agent at the end of last of and at the end of next season. Why would he want to come back to Arizona with Paul Goldschmidt this past season? You were 82 and 80, you're the third best team in the National League West, and there's not a clear way for this team to get far better than it was last season. Patrick Corbin was a free agent, your best starting pitcher last year. He gets a six-year, $140 million deal uh, from the Washington Nationals. They weren't going to be able to match that. Granke is extremely expensive moving forward. It's the time for this team to take a step back and start rebuilding. If you can get somebody to take half of Granke's salary and you move him, maybe A.J. Pollock leaves in free agency as well. You play your young players, and if— if Paul Goldschmidt was still on this team, they'd be five wins better in 2019, but that wouldn't get them into the playoffs with what they've already expected to lose, including Corbin, who they've already lost, and they would let Goldschmidt walk in free agency for nothing. They wouldn't recruit anything. At least in this situation, they get something back for Goldschmidt. They get something back for it, but you've just both expedited your building and rebuilding process by a few years because now you're going to rebuild you need to rebuild now. That's that's why you make this trade. You're but rebuilding. you also hinder your entire rebuild process because you need to start from the base, base, base level 
for Were they going to re-sign Paul Goldschmidt this offseason and be offer, part of a rebuild? They totally offer Paul Goldschmidt. Would he, uh, why would you, if you're Paul Goldschmidt, would right. you want to play why for Arizona? You? Money. They're going to sign him. They're, they're going to give they're him gonna money. They're going to outbid Los Angeles. They're sure. going to outbid New York. They're going to outbid Philadelphia. They're, they're the stars. You do that to your cornerstone players. You do that to your superstar Philadelphia only is ready player. to spend stupid money. And they're stupid going to. money, they're said gonna John Middleton. It. But we're going to burn it out this year. They're going to run their entire luxury cap into Bryce Harper's pockets, and they're going to be fine. But what I don't understand— I'm saying Arizona's not going to re-sign Paul Goldschmidt, is so you trade him now so you get something in return. You sped up your rebuild process by giving away Paul Goldschmidt, but you also slowed down your rebuild process because now you got to start from the ground level. If you kept Goldschmidt, you'd at least have something to build off and build around. You'd have a veteran. You'd have a super talented player. Now they're going to be four or five years onto the rebuild process that I don't think any Arizona fan wants to do. Let's take it from St. Louis's side of the equation. They now have three middle of the lineup bats in Paul Carpenter, or excuse me, Matt Carpenter, who had a resurgent year a season ago, Goldschmidt, who we've talked about, and Marcelo Zuna, who did take a step back last year, but was a plus plus player, a fringe MVP candidate in his last year with the Marlins. They expect to have him back at full strength. I love this this move from St. Louis's perspective. They probably weren't going to be in on the Machado and the Harper sweepstakes. So they get Goldschmidt. Now they have a year to try to entice him to come back to that team who's obviously had a long stretch of winning. Goldschmidt is one of those guys, if not the guy, who is the underrated superstar, the little-known superstar. This past year, 5.4 wins above replacement. He hit 144 in May, but then after the All-Star break, hit 304, 390, 536 with an OPS above 900. He's got six straight seasons, as we said, as an All-Star. He hits righties and lefties pretty evenly when you look at his splits. And he's five tools. Just because he plays first base, he's a guy who has stolen bases before in his career. 32 stolen bases in 2016, just seven a season ago. But he's also a great defender. You mentioned that a moment ago, that, that this past season he had seven errors. Last year, the Cardinals' first baseman as a whole had 20 errors. He's played in at least 155 games in four straight seasons. If you haven't to- found that out by now, I love this guy. He'd be in probably in my top 10 or just outside of it if we were to rank the top guys in baseball right now, and you add that to an error, excuse me, to a St. Louis team that was right on the fringe last season. 88 wins, they don't make it in, but you know, you add his five wins just like that, and all of a sudden they look like maybe the front runner, at least a wild, uh, a wild card team out of the Central. Paul Goldschmidt was fourth in the MLB in OPS. The three above him were the MVP candidates. Right, Christian Yelich, Mike Trout, JD Martinez. This is a first baseman. And there are other names like Moogie Betts, J.C. Uh, Ramirez, who, who are right there. below him. Or excuse yeah. me, Jose Ramirez, who are below him. This lineup go will now lead off with Matt Carpenter, who, if anybody remembers, the absolute tear he went on last year. And yes, it is sustainable. It's Matt Carpenter. He'll do it again. Paul DeJong, Goldschmidt, and then Marcelo Zuna. That's a deadly first four. And we're not even talking about the somehow able to hit any baseball Yadier Molina that is still on this team and will still be playing. This was a great trade for the Arizona Cardinals. If I can knock for them— the, For the St. Louis uh, sorry. Cardinals. I, we, we, I've been doing we, the yeah, same thing. We said the same thing because we were just talking <laughs> football. For the St. Louis Cardinals, it was a great trade for them. If I can give them one knock, uh, they should have had more money moving. I think they gave up a lot of players, but I think some sort of money because Paul Goldschmidt, like we mentioned, is going to ask for a lot and not that— Neither team would have offered him a lot, but it's just nice to have more to offer him. So I wished a bit more money got moved around, but it's a great trade for the Cardinals. The Diamondbacks also lost Patrick Corbin, who was a free agent after having the best season in his career. Last year, in exactly 200 innings pitched across 33 starts. Corbin had a 3.15 ERA, a 1.05 whip, and just over 11 strikeouts per nine innings pitched. He signs a six-year, $140 million deal with the Washington Nationals, who now pair him with Max Serzer and Steven Strasburg atop their rotation to form one of the best in Major League Baseball. Let's talk Corbin first before we talk about the implications on perhaps the Nationals' chase of Harper. Just taking Corbin, you think this is sustainable for him? That's going to be the question that everybody's going to ask, and how much better does it make Washington? Well, now Washington is one of the teams with the best three starting pitchers in baseball. And they if they're not in the top three, they're in the top five. Yeah, I'd, I think it's maybe Cleveland and then probably Washington. I'd put the Mets above them um, pretty they handily. They can be healthy. Actually, yeah. Barring 
injuries. I mean, they got one guy I can rely on. Probability-wise, yeah. they're going to get hurt some uh-huh. way, shape, or form. But assuming everyone's healthy, I'll put the Mets at one. Um, but what Patrick Corbin does is now he's a three. He'll be the third starter in this rotation, albeit matchups and times and breaks will adjust that. But that's a great space for him because this is a Washington team that can provide a lot more run support than he's used to be getting. A lot more firepower, a better audience, a better crowd, a better baseball atmosphere. I like the move. I think Patrick Corbin's going to be fine. I don't think it's too much negative on either side of the ball. So now, how does that affect their chase of Bryce Harper? On on the surface, it doesn't seem like a franchise that is in a position to offer out a $140 million contract plus more than the already $300-plus contract they offered Bryce Harper at the end of the season, and he declined. Does that put them out of the bidding for Bryce Harper? Are they going to sit back with Robles, with Soto, with Eaton, the outfield that they have now, and rely on that pitching staff? I think it puts them back into the conversation because now they have a a little trophy that they can show them. They can say, we just got Patrick Corbin. We got Corbin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, now we're we're more inclined. Like, because before they can offer him more money— but maybe Oh, you're saying to Harper. I was saying kind of just to your fan base, you can say, yes, we lost Harper, but we're still investing in this team. We're still going to be a contender. Oh, no, I'm talking about Washington turning around and now going to Bryce Harper. Oh. I think to Harper, it's, I think it's all gone. about money. Yeah, I think Harper's I don't gone, think but... he cares about who he's playing with, as long as it's a contender, and, and no non-contender is going to offer him $400 million. Right. So, I think Bryce Harper's effectively gone yeah. from Washington, but now Washington it's, it's, should it's probably an argument. Let, him, let him know that— sure. We're working to help you. We're working to get you that ring that you said you wanted to bring to Washington. Uh-huh. Um, but I think as as a whole, I like the trade. I like the deal. Washington probably more in on Harper than they were before, but I think Harper's still walking away. The Yankees and the Phillies were two of the other teams in on Corbin, but both were unwilling to go to six years. They only offered him five years. The most recent reports are that both have interest in J.A. Happ now as a left-handed starting pitcher, and perhaps the Phillies could go after Dallas Keuchel, the free agent from the Houston Astros. Two more deals to to get to quickly before we head to break. This one affects your team, Jake Robinson Cano and Edwin Diaz from the Seattle Mariners sent to New York for Jay Bruce, Anthony Swarzak, Swarzak reliever, Bruce an outfielder who's in there basically for his money to be exchanged, Gerson, Bautista, and then the prospects, last year's first-round pick, Jared Kalanick and Justin Dunn. Your reaction to Cano and Diaz becoming New York Mets? A lot of people are saying this is the Robinson-Cano deal. It's the Edwin Diaz We frankly don't care about Robinson. You know, it's great that we have him. Getting a guy with one of the sweetest swings in baseball and one of the best second basemen to ever play is nice. It really is. Stay off the juice. Yeah, just don't get 80-game PED suspensions. But we now have the best closer in baseball. He Mm. had 57 saves. Last year. It's a take. Franchise best. Putting that all together, I like the trade. I think we gave up one too many prospects. I don't really like dumping three into that trade with Garrison Batista, number one pick Jared Kalanick, who's probably the best five-tool player to come into the organization since David Wright. Yes, hot take. Uh, And then Justin Dunn. I think we gave up one too many, but I do like the trade, and I think that like uh, new GM Brody Van Wagen and said, if you thought this was a last trade, you thought wrong about me. He's going to be making plenty more trades. I think they should move Syndergaard. I've said that before. I know you disagree with me. I yeah. I think this is a time to get out of him before his value goes too low if he misses most of next season with another injury. The big problem with that is just what's going to happen. All the Met fans know. We see it with every player. I think the most recent example is Justin Turner at the second that they take off the orange and blue, they're an all-star. And if we give away Noah Syndergaard and he hits prime Thor, 2015-2016 Thor, there is just going to be so much grief and we're probably not going to get anything with that. So I think they're hanging on for dear life. They can stay healthy. If you can get a Paxton-like package from a team that wanted Corbin, that wanted Keiko and missed out, I would listen. I would listen. Yeah, they said they are. They need to be absolutely floored to be trading right. away Noah Syndergaard. But now they're looking at JT Real Muto. I mm-hmm. like it. They, but they're yeah, if, if the, Mar- the Marlins are asking. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the Marlins are asking. Like you got to give us one of your three youngins and Rosario, and just, Nimmo, or Conforto. Yeah, and they just moved. Uh, maybe one they'd be interested in, Kellenic. Yeah. Uh, last trade that we want to get to briefly: the Phillies acquire Gene Segura, Juan Nicasso, and James Paisos. The last two relievers: Segura, shortstop. 
from the Seattle Mariners, who are in this rebuilding process, uh, in exchange for J.P. Crawford and Carlos Santana. I think this is an excellent trade. Your infield woes. Yep. And uh, Reese Hoskins can move now. It's a big, it's a big improvement at shortstop from what Crawford provided this team or failed to provide this team last year. But in that kind of timeshare with Scott Kingery, now you move everybody to their actual positions too. You have a full time shortstop and Gene Segura, a guy who's hit over three hundred in each of the past three seasons, was worth a little bit above four wins a season ago. And two years ago, after he was traded from Milwaukee to Arizona, had an All Star type season. He gets Segura, who's been a consistent bat, who now allows you to move Scott Kingery to second. Kingery will play there. They'll probably end up trading Cesar Hernandez. But you also move Carlos Santana and his contract, two years, $40 million remaining on it, to allow Reese Hoskins to move from left field back to first base, where he should be more comfortable, and the defense across the board should improve while adding a quality bat like Segura, who was a better hitter in all respects last year than Santana was. I think Crawford's long-term promise has pretty much gone away. This is a guy who was at one point considered the best prospect in the system, but once he got up to AAA, he really failed to hit, and last year you saw that too at the major league level. He's a good defensive shortstop. He's maybe a long-term piece there, at least a a stopgap guy for the Mariners as they continue their rebuild. And then if you're Phillies, you also take a swing at two relief pitchers. You can never have enough relief pitching. Who knows what they'll turn out to be, but the Phillies have been a team that isn't shy to move guys up and down between AAA and the major league roster, and they have two more arms to toy with there. I think the most important part is Reese Hoskins by a landslide because you can bring a guy who— His value in- increases so much yeah, with this. He was okay in the outfield. He was bad in left field. He was bad. The but, whole defense graded out bad. But now moving him to first, a more comfortable position uh, and a more comfortable position for the fans and the coaching, now really can make that defense— what it used to be five, six years ago when that outfield, that infield was rock solid and stretching two against them was brutal. So I think it was a good trade for them. And now it also opens up and spot in the outfield for, for yeah, hypothetically name, speaking, if you an outfield Bryce spot, Harper could play right field and you, you move some guys around. They have left field open for either a double Herrera or Nick Williams center field, maybe Robin Quinn or Herrera, who's still under contract for a while. Or you still have third base open, too, for Manny Machado. You could move Michael Franco pretty easily. Machado does want to play shortstop. He's not going to be able to do so with the Phillies. But if you're the highest bidder, does that outweigh him wanting to play shortstop versus third base? Maybe. For, Macha- probably, for Machado, yes. It probably if you, factors if in. If you told Bryce Harper, you, I mean, Bryce Harper's a little more flexible than Machado. Because if you yeah. tell Bryce Harper you, got, you could play center and you outbid, I but, think he'll be wary. Yeah, but if you're the Phillies, he'd be in right. Oh yeah, you'd move with with this team. Yep. Uh, you may be talking about center when you're talking Yankees, but they're both both teams are both in on Machado and Harper. We'll continue to monitor those. But the big move this past week, just a few hours ago, about 24 hours ago, Paul Goldschmidt to St. Louis. 